Hey, I'm Tanya Taylor, and welcome to What We're Made Of. And we are doing a special edition today, one of my favorite types of special editions, and it's called The Dudes I Dig. There are some really amazing dudes in this world who I really dig, doing really great things and whom I love to talk to, and maybe even for a full 18 minutes on a podcast. Just kidding. During these specials, I'll introduce you to some of the greatest men in this world living with a purpose through social impact, medicine, philanthropy, art, entrepreneurship, politics, urban development, music, nonprofits, banking, international human rights, and more. And today, their journalism. So I've been trying to get this dude on the books for a while. I finally got him all the way to my office in Chapel Hill to podcast with me, Mary Liz, and today, Caitlin. <laughs> and really to share some of his story with you. He's really one of my favorite people. While he's a man of very few spoken words, he has managed to make so much happen with his life and to build a remarkable legacy with it. Today, I'm podcasting with Arj Quarles III, whom I affectionately call OQ III. He's inspired me as a mentor and a friend and challenged me to dream and really challenged me to do. That's why I really dig him. Arge's career has spanned more than four decades. He's been a force to be reckoned with within the newspaper industry. He was named Publisher of the Year by Trade Publica Publication Editor and Publisher in 2002 and was Chairman of the Newspaper Association of America with, from 2001 to 2002. He's on the board of the Freedom Forum, which oversees the museum in Washington, D.C., and is a former board member of the Associated Press. Orge was recently retired after 16 years as the publisher of the Raleigh News and Observer, after publishing newspapers all over the country. And he's an amazing husband, father of, of two successful daughters and a grandfather now. I want to say welcome to what we're made of, and um, thank you for being a part of my life, and that's why I really wanted you here today. Well, thank you, Tanya. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, Delighted to see you again and uh, to meet uh, Caitlin and Mary Elizabeth. So uh, thank you. Thanks. I'm actually really nervous right now. Like, I'm never nervous to have anybody on this podcast, but he's like making me nervous. He's like all regal and whatnot. So um, let's get on with it. Because I usually have really cool conversations with him, but he makes me like nervous to interview him because he's like a real journalist. Okay. So. When I think of you, you know, I think of a person who's made it against all odds in a field of people that really don't look like us. And I really want to know how you did that. Well, you know, it's uh, a combination of hard work, uh, a little luck, and certainly uh, dedication to my craft. But I think most importantly, it was, I found a passion very early on in life and uh, was able to, to do this, not seeing it as a job, but more as an adventure, a daily adventure. So it's been a, it was a lot of fun. Never a job. Yeah, I mean, you know, he, does, he actually doesn't look like he worked a lot. I mean, you, because he looks really good. I mean, he does not look like he's 65 years old and retired, so I could see that it really was not a job in the sense that he's not like beaten down by it, but I really, 
I want to talk about being beaten down because, I mean, you crusaded for investigative journalism your entire life. And I want to know about how you took that path and why you took that path when other people would have just sort of cowered, especially with what you've been up against probably over the last six years in this very town. Uh, well, that's interesting that you, you point out my uh, support of investigative journalism. I, I wish I could pinpoint exactly where it came from, but I have a feeling that part of it was that early on in uh, college, uh, I actually wanted to go into law enforcement and I thought I'd be a really good cop someday. And luckily for me, uh, during one of my classes, uh, a local detective was actually the uh, professor. And uh, he called me after class one day and he said, look, he says, I know that uh, you're thinking about law enforcement, but let me give you a little advice. You know, and, and based on what I see and know of you, I think you'd be a lousy cop. And I, I'm picturing I, like chips. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> something like that. Remember, I grew up in California. So I know, that's what I'm thinking. It's like, kind of been... <laughs> But I, I asked him why he thought that, and he said, you know, and, and remember now, this was, you're talking over 40 years ago. Wow. Uh, he said, uh, police are trained to react and to respond to situations, and you ask a lot of questions, and that's, not really good if you're going to be a cop. So uh, I would encourage you to you know, think about something else. So I don't know if he was giving me good advice, honest advice, or uh, pulling my leg. But in any event, uh, I thought about it and decided to stay in marketing. And that's, that's the side of the business in which I came. But I've always, deep down inside, always thought I'd be a really good cop. So investigative reporting is kind of you know, second nature to me. You know, it's interesting that you should mention California because it, there seems to be like a real spotlight on a lot of what's happened in California lately. Um, you know, kind of looking back on the history of police brutality in California, um, looking back on sort of the history of how sort of the police forces kind of grew in California and re kind of revisiting what happened during, you know, the 90s, the 80s, even leading up to you know, how California kind of exploded, even kind of revisiting what happened with OJ in the 90s, which is kind of fascinating to me. Um, I actually was not as aware of any of what had happened as intricately as I am today um, in California and, and how, you know, sort of blacks ended up in California. How did your family actually end up in California? Well, my family was part of the uh, mass exodus of folks from Louisiana and Texas who went, went west, as you would. Uh, my parents uh, were from Houston. I was born in Houston, but moved to California during uh, the Korean War. And so at that time, there were lots of jobs in California, especially for uh, people of color working in the shipyards, and there were many uh, automotive manufacturing plants. Of course, there was uh, a number of aircraft manufacturing plants. So it was just a land of opportunity, and it was a good place to be for middle-class America. And so that's how we wound up uh, in California. 
did you find that the community was very um, was beginning to segregate as you sort of got you know older? Did you find well there were always there were uh, there were boundaries uh, in Southern California. And that's where I grew up. Uh, you knew areas that uh, were welcoming, and you knew where you needed not to be after dark. Uh, I grew up in Compton, and right next to Compton was Norwood, uh, Norwalk rather, and you know, you didn't go to Norwalk after dark. Uh, Long Beach was becoming more integrated, but still parts of it you didn't go to. And of course, uh, being in uh, Los Angeles in certain areas, especially around Beverly Hills, West Hollywood, you just, you know, in the evenings, it was not a good place to be. Uh, you mentioned some of the history. Well, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the Watts riots. Uh, I was actually, uh, you know, in Compton during the riots, and I uh, remember it distinctly. Wow. So, you know, as you kind of looked at your career as it evolved, um, you know, how did you kind of balance, how, you know, your feelings around race, um, you know, as, you, as your career in journalism kind of evolved? Well, you know, Tanya, first of all, I, I never let my race define me. You know, yeah. I let my work define me. And, you know, I've, I've always said that, you know, when you walk through the door, people know the color of your skin. So, you know, don't use that ever for any reason. Uh, use your work, your body of work for people to judge you. And at the end of the day, uh, we all know it's all about your character. And, and I've tried to always maintain a good, healthy character for just not only, my, not only myself being, but for my family and friends. So people um, talk about you as an amazing mentor and about the fact that you, I recall at your retirement party, had a correspondence with a man for more than a decade almost that you never met. And I remember um, Mary Liz might recall this at the day after your retirement party. I, I came into this office and I repeated the story about how this, this man had corresponded with you for years that you'd never met, who he found out about your award, and how the two of you had been writing letters back and forth and then eventually emails, and how you had encouraged him and he had encouraged you. and. Well, you know, this wonderful relationship that eventually evolved into a professional relationship. And it inspired me beyond belief. Well, I think you're uh, referring to uh, my very good friend, uh, Rufus Friday, who is a uh, publisher of the Lexington Herald in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. And uh, the story, I'll give very quickly, uh, I was named uh, Publisher of the Year for the Gannett Company in uh, 1989, and uh, they ran a story about it in USA Today. And Rufus, uh, who was actually in Raleigh at the time, read the story, got inspired from it, and wrote me a letter of introduction. And from there, we corresponded for years, as you say, uh, just getting to know each other. Eventually, I was uh, able to convince him to join Gannett, and uh, we continued to talk, but never met, and would be at a conference, and I'd miss him by a day, or he'd miss me by a day. And finally, when I came to Raleigh as publisher in 2000, 
Uh, I told myself if I ever had the opportunity to bring Rufus back, uh, I would do that. And that opportunity uh, presented itself in 2002. So, you know, we went full circle and I brought him back as our uh, vice president of uh, circulation, which is now called audience, with one promise. And that was, you know, you do a great job here. I'll do all I can to help you reach whatever goals you have in mind. And his goal was to be a publisher. And uh, it all worked out. And as I said earlier, he is publisher of the Lexington Herald. Yeah, I thought that that story, there were many stories told about you on the evening of your retirement party, which was, I mean, it, it seemed almost sort of awkward for you to be in the midst of your own celebration because you, you, you were just so, you're such a modest person, so it just seemed like you wanted it over. <laughs> But I loved, and I know everyone else needed that, and and I loved hearing the stories, um, and and they were just they were wonderful and very endearing. Um, I really want to know who your greatest inspiration is. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, the more I read about him, the more I learn about him. Uh, Abraham Lincoln certainly has to be you know near the top. Uh, he was an amazing man, and his ability to get people to work together, and I'm talking about all of his uh, opponents when he ran for the nomination for president, he was able to uh, get all of those uh, runner-ups, if you would, to come and join his cabinet. And then there's a great book out called Team of Rivals, and I, I offer that reading to anybody if you want to know about how to, to build teamwork, how to build trust, and most importantly, bring the sharpest minds together to focus on, on anything. Uh, it's worth reading. So he would be right at the top and certainly not far behind, if not on an equal level, would be Muhammad Ali, uh, because I grew up with him and he was such an inspiration. Uh, I actually had an opportunity to meet him, and a very quick story. Uh, oh, you did? Yes. Uh, one of my brothers got married, and at the wedding, Ali came. Really? And he, the moment he got there, he picked up our youngest daughter, Alicia, who was about two at the time, and he held her the entire evening. Uh. So we've got photos of that. and. Uh, he was, he was, again, a, an amazing man, very humble man, but very focused. Uh, he had strong beliefs, and he was able to speak up. And as we all know, he could back up his talk. Oh, yeah. Wow. Muhammad Ali. That's amazing. So there are a lot, I've been hearing a lots of quotes from Muhammad Ali. Do you have one that's your favorite? Oh, I don't know if I have a quote. I just, I just think that, again, history will be really good to him. And if you think about all the great things that have been written about him in his present tense, mm -hmm. and now that it's past tense, it will only get better. He was just an amazing man. And uh, just, you know, just happy that I grew up uh, during his time. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, Bryant Gumbel um, would tell 
tell great stories about him and, and, and really just about how he focused so much on being a person of character. And um, just watching the funeral and, and the things that Brian Gumbel said about him, that, that you know, the, what he really would want you to take away was that he was a person of character. Mm -hmm. um, so how did you manage to raise such great kids? Well, uh, thank you, but uh, I have a great wife, and, and without her, that wouldn't have happened. Uh, you know, to raise children, you have to have really two strong individuals uh, and, and a system that uh, your kids can uh, grow up in, but also blossom, if you will. And we were able to do that. My wife is a former school teacher, and so she was the educational arm of... Uh, our, our household and I was more of the of course you know the sports guy and uh, how you meet people how you act when you meet people uh, and we were fortunate to uh, live uh, several really nice communities uh, in my career and my girls knew what to do when they got to town and made the adjustment so um, you know it's all about what what you instill in them and you know give them space and when they screw up and they're going to screw up just like you screwed up you know you're, you're there uh, to talk and counsel and uh, you know remind them okay you did it once the key is don't do it again uh, learn from it so uh, I you know it's no secret you have to be involved you have to be supportive uh, you have to know who their friends are and uh, you've got to set some what I like to call boundaries. And uh, I did that with my girls and I do it with my young grandkids. You've got to give them boundaries because if you don't, they'll do what kids do. Your granddaughter um, made quite an impression on me because she managed to circle the room and smile at everyone the entire time she was circling the room back and forth from her aunt to her mother, from her aunt to her mother. So I thought that was delightful at your, at your party. Beautiful child. Oh, thank you. Um, so tell me what's next. Tell me what you're up to. Tell me why you're not really retired. Well, uh, I'm, uh, I'm involved with a couple of nonprofits uh, that uh, has always been a passion of mine to be supportive of the community. Uh, on the board of the North Carolina History Museum, and that's been uh, kind of right in line with all the reading that I do. I love history, so being part of that board was an easy decision. But I also have gotten uh, deeply involved with the uh, Dix Parks uh, Conservancy. And as you know, uh, Dix Parks was uh, acquired by the city of Raleigh last year. It's 306 acres in almost downtown Raleigh. It's probably the last of uh, that type of acreage in any metropolitan city. And so the, the, the opportunity to create what we call, quote-unquote, our version of Central Park is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So I'm really excited about being part of that. And as you mentioned, uh, I am also on the board of the Freedom Forum, which uh, helps the museum in Washington, D.C. So uh, those three projects keep me pretty busy, along with the grandkids. Yes, and the grandkids are quite a lively couple of kids, grandkids, <laughs> and they're beautiful as well. Um, so I don't think this is the last time I'm going to be talking to Orange because I want to keep up on all of the stuff you have going on, and I want to bring you back to talk about some milestones on these projects and how 
we can support moving them forward. Well, you can certainly count on that, Tanya. And, uh, you know, I want to say thank you for what you're doing. And I think doing this podcast is is, uh, very creative and, you know, 100% behind whatever you're into and look forward to uh, keeping up. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for always letting me shake things up. (laughs) So, in conclusion, I want to thank everybody for joining us on another episode of What We're Made Of. And thanks, OQ3. You always make me laugh. I love knowing what you have going on. I love having lunch with you. I love being able able to pay for it this time. Me too. (laughs) If there's anything that anyone would like to share with me, any of our listening audience, please, please, please write us. Um, Please send me a a note um, at giftgoddessnc um, on Twitter. You can find new episodes of What We're Made Of on my website, tanyataylor.com, or you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Stitcher's new, so you can never miss an episode. Thank you to everyone who subscribed so far, so please leave a review and let us know how we're doing and help us reach new audiences. We've got an exciting new lineup of guests for future episodes, but in the meantime, you can find me on Twitter again at giftgoddessnc. Thanks, and we'll catch up with you next time on What We're Made Of. More women to come. More dudes I dig. Bye.